And I'll invite us as God's people again to turn to uh, the book of 1 Corinthians as we continue in our study of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We'll be looking today at chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe it's found on page 954 in the Pew Bibles before you. Uh, it's also printed in your bulletin, so I invite you to turn there. I'm doing this because I love you. I'm doing this because I love you. Those words spoken by a parent to a child, delivering some consequence, some measure of discipline for wrongdoing, sound contradictory, particularly the ears and the mind of the child to whom they are being spoken or who's receiving the discipline. When we think of of discipline, the first thing we often think of is, is not love, but rather correction or punishment or chastisement. And that's one of the elements of discipline. And yet God's word is very clear that godly discipline is a mark of parental love. The writer of the Hebrews notes that any true father disciplines his child. And quoting from Proverbs applies that to our heavenly father. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. And while it is true that discipline may lead to leave, may need to lead to tough love, to difficult consequences, it's equally true that a lack of discipline is no love at all. Proverbs reminds us of the loving context for corrective discipline, saying, He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. And the same is true in the family of God. In fact, when we speak of the the marks of the church, most agree that they include the sound preaching of God's word. They include the, the administration of the sacraments which God has given us and the practice of loving discipline. Part of the governing standards of our particular denomination is something called the book of discipline. And it's, it's meant to, to give sessions and, and members a biblical perspective and, a, and a, a biblical process in dealing with matters of sin or offenses in the church. And it, it opens with these words, which I, I want to read. It says, the basis of all church discipline is the free love of God in Christ, expressed in both mercy and in judgment. The purpose of discipline is to bring about the reconciliation of man to God and man to man, one another, and to engage the people of God in the ministry of reconciliation to promote peace, purity, and the building up of the body of Christ. We as individuals and we as the corporate church of God are to be ready and willing to recognize and to respond to sin in the church with a profound sense of God's love expressed both in mercy as well as in judgment so that both God's holiness as well as his grace will be manifested in the life of his people together. And such was the case in the church in Corinth. Paul, as we've seen in the first four chapters of this letter, has been exercising an element of discipline that we might call admonishing or warning or or in some cases rebuking. 
And he has been pointing out the danger and divisiveness of human pride of boasting in the church, warning them and calling them back to the humble way of Jesus Christ. And as we saw last week, his motivation is that of a spiritual father to the children that he loves. His desire is that he would come to them again with an embracing and loving and, and, and a gracious hug. But if necessary, he says at the end of chapter 4, I'm willing to wield the rod as well. Now, over the next several chapters, as we'll be looking at in the coming weeks, he transitions his attention to some very specific issues that need to be addressed in the life of the church. Issues specifically impacting how they are living together in the body of Christ, the family of God. And here in chapter 5, which we are about to read, he addresses a particular situation that calls for the toughest measure on the part of the church. In fact, Paul's words, as we'll read them, are so tough that at first they may offend our sense of what is truly loving. They may seem counter to what we might expect in a community of grace. But as we look at Paul's words and we see the grounds for and the goal of his call for discipline, we realize what seems a harsh sentence of God's punishment is actually a humble submission to God's purifying grace, both for the individual and for the community of Christ, that is the church. And those two are connected, vitally connected, because of the covenant connection, because of the corporate nature, as we've seen in this letter, of our relationship both to God and to one another in the body of Christ. And so the main point of this this chapter, which we will read, is that sin does not just affect us as individuals, but it impacts the greater body of Christ, and therefore needs to be addressed by the body of Christ. So let's look at what we can learn from this situation. And my hope is it will not only see the importance, but also the basis of God's love exercised in our call to pursue living together in holiness as God's people. Read along with me as I read beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with, present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy or, and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality 
or greed, or is an idolater, or a reviler, or drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Father, these are hard words, words which you have given to us in love. For you know our need to experience not only your grace, but your truth. And Father, to be shaped more and more, to be holy as you are holy. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us, help me, as we hear and as I speak these words, Father, to convey what you would have us hear, that we might be changed more and more into your likeness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what's the situation here? Paul has received a somewhat shocking report of sexual immorality in the church. It was, <clears throat> it was not a secret. Paul says it's been reported as common knowledge. And the nature of this situation is one that was unacceptable even in the sexually charged and promiscuous culture of Corinth. In fact, it was even against Roman law. Well, what was going on? Paul says a man has his father's wife, which is another way of saying he was in a, a sexual relationship, most likely with his stepmother. And we're not given any more details about the situation, except to say that this is blatant immorality, no matter how you look at it. And it's not a momentary act of passion followed by repentance. It's not a thing that has happened in the past, but it is ongoing. This man has present tense, his father's wife, and is living a life that was shameful even by Corinthian standards. But notice that while this man's sin may be shocking, this is not the main focus of Paul's concern. What's more shocking is the response of the church, which has been not just to, to overlook or ignore the situation, but actually to continue in its, in its prideful boasting despite this very public sin. Paul says, and you are arrogant. Now we might be thinking, I know I was thinking, how could any church be proud or boast in such a thing? What kind of thinking, what kind of theology would promote pride and boasting in light of such a blatant instance of a violation of God's word? Well, we don't know exactly, but over in chapter 6, Paul again addresses the issue of sexual immorality in the context of those who were saying, all things are lawful for me. We know there was this view of some in the early church that since we have been saved by grace, since we have been set free in Christ, then therefore we're free from the law. It doesn't matter how we live our lives because God will forgive us in Christ Jesus. And Paul addresses this over in Romans 6 where he says, some were saying, let us sin that grace, God's grace may abound. And he says, may it never be. We have died to sin. How shall we go on living in it, he says there. And the Corinthians could have been looking at this situation as, as an expression of their Christian liberty and their toleration of it as, a, as an indication of, of Christian love for a brother. This is a, a, there's a theology of grace that can turn God's love into license and God's freedom into an opportunity for, for boast, actually boasting in our sin. 
And we see this in many churches today. We don't want to offend. We don't want to be seen as judgmental. We don't want to be accused of, of being out of touch or intolerant. And so, so we might overlook or perhaps in some cases even endorse sin in our midst. Or it may have been that they were simply just deceiving themselves. They were, they were continuing to boast in their wisdom and their maturity in Christ while allowing this, this flagrant and public behavior to continue right under their noses. Perhaps they were trying to come up with excuses, maybe to sweep it under the rug or just hope it would disappear. Either way, Paul says they are being puffed up with pride when in fact they should have been humbled with a deep sense of grief. He says, shouldn't you rather be mourning over this man's sin? Now I think that's, that's important to note. It's important to note that the attitude that leads to discipline in the church is not one of pride or arrogance. It's not people saying, hey, look at us, we're holier than thou, and therefore we're going to point out your sin and do something about it. That in itself is sin. But the attitude is one of grief, one of humility that sees and understands the deceptive and destructive nature of sin and seeks to deal with it head on, not only in our own lives, but also in the, in the lives of our, our corporate community in the whole body of Christ. It is actually prideful and arrogant and unloving to overlook or to leave sin unconfronted. But humility and love leads to action. It leads to moving towards dealing with sin. So what should the Corinthians have done? Well, Paul says... You should have removed this man from among you. They should have put him out of fellowship. They should have excommunicated him from the church. They should have delivered him over to Satan. Wow. That sounds harsh. That is harsh. <laughs> now, we should, we should note that such action is not the first step in the process. Matthew 18, Jesus outlines steps for how we're to, to confront a, a brother or a sister who is sinning and exercise loving discipline in their lives. And he says, first of all, go to the person directly, individually, personally. To pray that God would grant repentance and reconciliation. And if that happens, he says, then leave it there. You have won your brother or your sister. If the issue is not resolved by that one-on-one -on -one engagement, then Jesus says, take a couple of others with you. Faithful brothers and sisters who can go and who can, who can be a witness and who can, who can uh, encourage repentance and faith. And if that doesn't work, then you should take it to the church, which may mean going to the, the elders in the church and bringing them in on the matter in order to, to counsel and to, and to encourage towards repentance but if all of that still does not lead to a person repenting of their sin and being reconciled, then the church, Jesus says, is to treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, put him out of the fellowship. Now, we don't know all the background to this particular situation, but Paul is clear that he has reached that furthest point. He says, even though I am not with you, 
I am present in spirit and I've already pronounced judgment on this man. And this is not an action to be taken lightly. It's to be entered into with great humility. But at the same time, when necessary, it's an action that is ultimately for the good of everyone involved. And again, you probably hear that and say, well, how can that be? How can putting someone out of the church ever be considered good? Well, because of what Paul tells us here in this passage. First, Paul says this kind of discipline is actually for the good of the one who is persisting in sin. He says in verse 5, Therefore, when you are gathered together in the name of Jesus, when I'm there with you in spirit and, and the power of the Lord is present, deliver this man over to Satan. Why? For the destruction of the flesh so that this so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is not something done without serious consideration. Paul calls the church together. He continues to to give them guidance and direction, and he assures them of his presence in spirit. And when they are gathered in Jesus' name, and to keep in mind that their actions were to be done with his power, not their own. Jesus says in Matthew 18, that same passage, when two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there in their midst. And he says, whatever the church binds or looses on earth will be bound or loosed in heaven. You see, church discipline is not just a a group of people trying to root out sinning brothers or sisters. It is God's people carrying out the will of God with God's wisdom and with his power And in some cases, such as here, that may mean removing a person from the protection of God and exposing them to the danger of Satan and his destructive forces. Now, what does it mean to hand someone over to Satan? I don't fully know. (laughs) Only God fully knows what that means because only God is the one who can work through something like that. But the term is used in other places in Scripture. It's used in 1 Timothy 1.20 where because of their continued and unrepentant rejection of the truth, Paul says that he has, he has handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. You hear that? There's a purpose behind that, that they might, they might learn. In both cases, the sentence is harsh, but the purpose is just. To hand someone over to Satan likely means to remove them from the protection that is afforded to God's covenant people in the church. God is our refuge. He is our shelter. He is our shield for his people. And the church is is like a citadel where his, his presence and his power are there on our behalf. It is a, it is a, the church is a school of life where we are trained by his word and instructed in godliness. Where we are equipped for the spiritual battle that we face in this life. It is a safe bunker where we can withstand attacks. And it is a hospital where we are treated and cared for and healed when we are wounded or when we wound ourselves through sin. To hand someone over to Satan is kind of like taking them out and and dropping them off again in enemy territory. It is to push out of the protecting, providing care and nurture of the church into the world where Satan has great influence and where they are, as Paul again says over in Romans, given over to the sinful desires of their heart. 
and all the consequences that that brings. But again, notice the goal. It's for the destruction of the flesh, meaning the the destruction of the sinful nature. Sin destroys, and Paul is saying, give this person over to their sin. Let them see and experience the painful result of Satan's destructive desires so that they will turn from sin and their spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord. Some of you here have known the pain of having to respond to a child who is making poor choices or rebelling against your counsel and wisdom. And as they grow older, to say to them, you can't live at home anymore. Or we can't support you financially anymore. Or letting them suffer consequences of their actions physically or, or relationally or even legally. Some of you have been on the receiving end of such discipline as maybe children who were wayward under their parents' watch. Some of us may be in that situation right now. As heart-wrenching and as hard as it is, when we are given over to the sinful desires and decisions being made, or when we have to give someone we love over to that, it is always in hopes that they will come to their senses, that they will return and be welcomed to the family. And notice something very encouraging here. Satan serves the purposes of God. Satan serves the purposes of God. Satan is not out there on his own. He's not wreaking havoc and harming saints while God is just wringing his hands, wondering what the outcome will be. He is on a short leash, and sometimes God may give him a little rope to have his way but only to serve God's sanctifying purposes. It's not always the result of sin. You remember Job's case where where Satan came and and said, Job is a righteous man, but permit me to afflict him and see if he doesn't turn his back on you. And God said, go ahead, just don't take his life. And through all of that affliction, God was bringing Job to the place of recognizing that even even though you may slay me, yet I will trust in you. Paul himself, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, says that he was given a thorn in his flesh. And do you remember what he calls it? A messenger from Satan. (laughs) A messenger from Satan. But God would not take it away despite his pleading in order that Paul might be more and more dependent on God's grace. That he might see God's power manifested in his weakness. But in some cases, God may give us over to our sin in order to show us the logical consequences and draw us back to him. Like the father who allowed the the son, his youngest son, to run off and waste his inheritance in the the parable of the prodigal son. God allows us to experience the pain of sin and he waits with open arms to have us come running back to his grace. And while we can't be certain that he is speaking of this particular situation, I think it's encouraging if you flip over into 2 Corinthians chapter 2. There, Paul, writing in another letter to this church, he encourages the church in verse 12, excuse me, in verse 5, 
to, he encourages the church there to receive back in forgiveness the one who has caused such pain and who was punished by the church for the pain he had caused to all of them. He says, reaffirm their, your love for him, forgive him such that, he says in verse 11, we would not be outwitted by Satan. <laughs> so church discipline can at times take radical measures like putting someone out of the church in order that they may ultimately be reconciled. And ultimately, that discipline is for the good of the one sinning against God, that God, by his grace, would lead him to repentance and restoration. But as Paul notes here, it's not just for the purpose of reconciling the sinner. It's also for the benefit and blessing of the church. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, sin does not just affect the person who is sinning. It affects the whole body of Christ. The analogy Paul uses was a familiar one. We read about it in Exodus 2. Leaven was a, a little batch of fermented dough that contained yeast. We use it when we make sourdough bread. And that leaven uh, is, is added to new dough and it, it causes it to rise by having the bacteria, that, that sour dough, actually go and spread through the entire uh, lump of new dough, causing it to rise. And, and the Bible says sin is like that. It spreads, it contaminates that which it remains in contact with. It impacts everything, which is why leaven is, is often analogous to that which is sinful or that which is unclean in the scriptures. And the church, as the body of Christ, and as Paul will detail later in this letter, the church is the body of Christ, and as Paul will detail later, later on in this letter, each of us as individuals are connected to one another. We're united as one, and the actions of one has ripple effects. <laughs> Across the entire membership. Now that is more obvious in cases perhaps like this. Or in cases where say a leader of the church falls into sexual sin. Or some big scandal happens in the church. As we've seen when, when sexual abuse is covered up or overlooked. The sin perpetuated and the, and the pain and damage done is immeasurable. And is often irreparable for many who have suffered from it. And because of that, it is appropriate as the church, even as the body of Christ, to repent, even corporately, together for the evil that is done by those who profess Christ's name. But even sins that are not as readily evident as what is happening here or some of the things we may read about in the news, sins such as lying, pornography, anger, Greed, bitterness, discontent. These things, if they're left unchecked, if they are overlooked, they have their impact not only on the individual but on the church as a whole. My sin affects you. And your sin affects me. And our sin affects one another. Because we are redeemed, we are made holy by the blood of Christ together. We are joined together by his spirit and, and are bound together in a covenant community in which God himself is present and powerfully at work. And thus there's a responsibility of the community towards each member and each member 
towards the corporate community. There is no such thing as an independent or individual Christian. There is no such thing as, well, that's their sin. We'll let the, it's going to affect them, but it doesn't really affect me. And that's what is reflected in the, whole, in the whole Passover celebration. The Passover celebrated God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt. It was a reminder of what set them apart from, all the, uh, from, the, from the Egyptians and their redemption that was under the blood of the Passover lamb, which was sacrificed and placed over the door frames of their home. That is what united them. And each year at Passover, the family celebrated the feast as that common reminder of salvation. And then for seven days after that, that initial Passover feast, they were to clean out all the leaven from their home. A sign of their call to, to, to be holy, to be set apart from the world, to live according to God's will. And they would sweep everything clean out of the house and they would eat only unleavened bread. And then if you follow after the exodus out of Egypt, the laws laid out in Deuteronomy governing God's people reflected this, this covenant commitment together. To be holy as God is holy. And Paul uses this analogy to speak of sin in the church. He said, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Once and for all, his blood covers us and, and removes sin and sanctifies us as holy before God. And our celebration of that does not last just a week, but it lasts a lifetime. And a, a lifetime for sin to be put out and continually purged from our midst. We must be diligent to seek purity. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have sin to deal with. We do. <laughs> we all have sin to deal with. The church is full of sinners and therefore we will have to deal with it. But we don't make peace with it. We don't overlook it. We don't give it any foothold. Rather, we are called to confess it, to fight it, to flee from it. Because Jesus, as Paul reminds us in Titus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. And so notice Paul says, get rid of the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. In other words, you are holy. We are holy because God has made us that way in Christ. It's not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. And therefore, his work in us now as the body of Christ is to make us what we are. To sanctify us more and more into that holiness which he has redeemed us for. Christ has died for us. Christ has transformed us. We belong to him and we are to live for him. And lastly, Paul warns against a misunderstanding that could occur. He says, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he clarifies by saying, I don't mean the people of this world. Paul is not here talking about unbelievers, those outside of the church. Paul says to be separate as God's people does not mean to isolate ourselves in a little Christian ghetto, trying to cut ourselves off from all association with, with anything that has to do with sin in a world full of sinners. And Paul says, the reason is, you're right, the world is full of sinners. <laughs> but to not associate with them would mean you'd have to leave the world. 
You see, we, we, are, we should not be shocked or surprised by the sexual immorality or the greed or, or the, all the other blatant sins we see happening in the world around us. And that's why Jesus left us in the world to be in it, but not of it. To be salt and light, to be Christ ministers and messengers to a sinful world. To do so, we have to associate with it in some degree. Jesus dined with sinners. Paul says, I'm talking about sin inside the camp. Don't fellowship with those inside the church who persist in sin. Now that distinction is important. That distinction is important. We are sinners in the church. And sinners sin. And if we are in the church, we will associate with people who sin. Paul is not speaking of the wrestling that we all face with our sinful nature. He is not talking about those who, who fall into sin or even repeatedly struggle with sin or with some addiction or deal with recurring lapses into sin. Christ walks with us and he calls us to walk to, with one another where there is recognition and repentance over sin. Paul, what Paul is speaking of here is those who are willful. Those who ignore or who dismiss or simply embrace their sin as their decided pattern of life. And now Paul opens the door to say, I'm not just talking about this one situation. I'm not just talking about sexual immorality here, which is typically the big sin we like to lift up and say, oh yeah, we, we're not guilty of that. Well, I'll just go back and read Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. But Paul wants us to be sure that, that, that we know this is not just about this one situation. He says, not just those who are sexually immoral, but the greedy, the idolater, the reviler, the drunkard, the swindler. We need to be serious about all sin. And where someone is willing to repent and seek reconciliation, or excuse me, where they're unwilling to repent or seek reconciliation, where they are, if we would say, hardened in their sin then Paul says, don't associate with that person. Cut them off from fellowship. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean we can never talk to them. It doesn't mean that we should ostracize them from any contact. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to seek to minister to them and, and, and encourage them in the gospel. In fact, we should. But what he says, he's talking about engaging in fellowship in a way that implies that they are a part of the body. Don't even eat with them, certainly not in the Lord's Supper. But Paul's probably talking about it as you gather as the body, as you, as you have your, your fellowship meals that are distinct to who you are in Christ. See, a person's profession is proven by his life. We may say we are one thing, but if we don't live like that, then we are saying by our actions, we really aren't that. And that's why when someone joins a church, we ask them if they will, by the power of their spirit, live as becomes a follower of Christ. That's one of the vows we take. Are we going to do that perfectly? No. Every single one of us will fall short of that. But that is our desire. That's our pursuit. And we are to call to help one another along in that journey. And so church discipline is for the good of God's glory and that it demonstrates that we are a purified people. We are eager to do good works. We are to glorify our Father in heaven. We're not to judge those outside of the church. That's God's job. His judgment will come 
either in the blood of his son shed for their sins and called to repentance and, and eternal life in him or in his wrath for sin in the final judgment. But we are to exercise a measure of judgment in the church for the sake of, and the good of those God has called to himself for the good and growth of his kingdom and the glory of his name. And when we do that, it enhances our witness for Christ. It is our witness for Christ. The world needs to see a church that is distinct, salt and light to a decaying and darkened world. And when they don't, when they see a church that is, that is compromised by endorsing or, or overlooking sin or a church that is covering up sin, they look and they say, you know, there's really nothing different about them. So how should we approach sin in our midst? Well, first, we need to recognize it in our own lives. We should humble ourselves before the Lord. We should not be so proud to think that it does not exist, not just in here, but in here. Nor should we be so arrogant to say, it's no big deal. Don't worry, I'm forgiven. We should mourn the sin in our own lives. And we should mourn in particular persistent sin that we struggle with or we see present. And let us not be so soft on sin that we are afraid to go to another person and say, hey, I need to confess this. I need to, I need to ask you to walk alongside me in this. Or to go to another person and say, Brother, sister, I see this happening in your life. Can, can we pray about this? Can I, can I come alongside and, and help you in this? The first steps of church discipline are always happening. They are happening in the pulpit here as we listen to God's word. They're happening in our prayer times as we, as we share struggles that we are having together. They happen in our fellowship together as we encourage and, and, and walk beside one another in the the daily battles we have with our sin nature and with the world around us. And so we should walk together in love as we seek to battle and overcome sin in our lives by Christ's grace. We need to be quick to clear the log out of our own eye before we address the speck in our brother's eye. But let us not overlook the value of going to someone with a humble and contrite heart and saying, I need help or can I help you? And let us also be patient and proactive, but proactive. Sometimes issues take time. There may be counseling. There may be accountability, ongoing encouragement that needs to take place. We need to be careful not to be hasty in judgment. But at the same time, let us be willing to deal with sin in the way God has called us to. Recognizing that in some instances, a person may choose to leave and and get out from under the protection of God's church or may come to the point where they need to be pushed out into the raging storm in order to recognize the blessings of the safe shelter in Christ's kingdom. And let us remember the ultimate basis for such difficult steps is the tough and tender love of our Heavenly Father. Satan is not sovereign. God is and at times he uses even the enemy of our souls to work out his gracious will in our lives. But how painful such work can be. 
And we need to pray that God would do that work with mercy. Friends, discipline is not harsh or self-righteous, but it is tough love. And when done humbly, wisely, with the hope of reconciliation, it is good for all involved. We don't know exactly why the Corinthians did not respond to this man's sin. But let us learn from their mistake. Let us learn from our own mistakes, for we have made them. Is there anyone in your life who appears blatantly to be flirting with sin? Is there anyone here (laughs) that is dealing with that in your own heart? Don't stand aside ignoring it. Don't look away from it. Come first to God and to Christ. And then let us come to one another that we might seek repentance and grace in our time of need. Let us resolve together as God's people to humbly and lovingly be accountable to one another and to keep the feast with the bread of sincerity and truth, pursuing integrity for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that there is great mercy and great hope in the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. And there is great judgment for sin that in him has been taken upon himself on the cross. And under his blood, Lord, we are redeemed. We are set free. We are forgiven of all our sin. And so, Lord, in this daily battle, in this life, as we journey to glory, as we battle with our own sin nature, as we battle with the sin of others against us, as we battle with sin in the world around us, Father, may we fight side by side. May we not battle one another, but may we battle the flesh within us. May we do so in humble gracious love and we're needed in tough discipline in order Lord that you might be glorified that our souls might be sanctified and that your people might reflect to a a dark and dying world the life and the love and the grace and truth of Christ we ask that you would do this in his name Amen. amen